Welcome to the Soulful CXO, where we discuss leadership principles, core values, health, wellness, and resiliency. I'm Dr. Rebecca Wynn, the founder and the host of the show. Do you have a topic or guests you would like to be featured on the show? Would you like to be a sponsor? Please reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at Rebecca at SoulfulCXO.com. Please go to our partner, Cybersecurity Tribe, for weekly show recaps and other resources. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Soulful CXO. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Wynn, and we are so pleased to have with us today, Ryan Faye. Ryan is an executive leader. He's known well in the industry on speaking, writing prolific. He's with Gardner right now. He is their global head of high tech and global enterprises in San Diego. Before that, he's with ACI Specialty Benefits, many positions, but his main position was global CIO. Before that, he was senior manager information systems with North America Van Airlines. He is a mentor and advisor to several universities. He does it in business. He does it in engineering. He's won many awards. Awards, for example, the 2015 San Diego Top Technology Executive Awards. He's won awards through Enterprise 360 for being a CIO, blockchain, innovative leader. Ryan and I have served on many boards together. Ryan, it is a pleasure to have you here on the show with me today. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Ryan, for people who don't know you, what did you start off actually in your first degree. What was your, your bachelor's in? I know you have your master's and stuff like that and other education and leadership and technology, but what did you get your bachelor's in? Yeah. So I started off in uh, management of information systems, right? Because I didn't really know what I wanted to do as far as I wanted to be the computer side, the hardware side, you know, mechanical engineering side. And what I realized is that I like technology and I like people and I like bridging the gap between technology and people. So information systems seemed like a pretty safe starting point and then started there and, you know, learn the different aspects of what that looks like. And it's always funny because when you go through academic career, there's so many uh, points where you just kind of pivot based on what makes sense to you and what's relevant to what you're working on the moment. I think it's funny because all those different experiences definitely build up to be something, you know, incremental as you go along. So from that perspective, I think it's uh, one of those things where it's been exciting, but also I found out from my perspective, like the technology is great for the people aspect, the leadership aspect, the ability to connect, you know, one plus one equals three, those kind of stuff. That's really excites me and gets me going in the morning. Now, you started out, I believe, early in your career, really more on the network administration side, then moved into information technology roles, and then really moved into the CIO role. That's a different journey than most people. How did that come to be? And how did you find out that being a chief information officer and actually being a strategist was more your forte than being on the networking side? Yeah, it's funny because I, I love networking as far as just the way network set up, data centers, that kind of stuff. And then what I realized quickly is I actually loved the human aspect of networking, right? And connecting people together to make sure we're doing the right things. So I, I think what it was is when you're working on a large project, you know, like a data center rollout, or you're doing something where you're going completely, you know, public cloud, you know, environment, you're working with a lot of different groups and a lot of different people for different stakeholders based on what you need to accomplish. So what I realized is as I was, you know, started out by, you know, traditional dropping wires, going in, doing different technology setups in different systems, and that's fun, but I enjoy actually more than that was actually talking to people about why this is happening, why we're doing it, what the business outcome of doing so. I really enjoyed that. So I think some of the business leaders said, hey, you know, Ryan's pretty good at being bilingual in technology and business talk. So we should probably have him come in and start briefing us on why we're doing these things. So I would come in and I, I literally started my career by just coming in and articulating why we are doing, you know, did from data center, you know, deployment, wherever it is geographically. And I'd say, look, we're doing this because of X, Y, and Z. 
maybe it's around compliance, maybe it's around something we're doing around, we need to have better latency or something around edge computing. And then from that perspective, you know, I got really involved with just working closely with the executives of the different companies. And then from that perspective, it came out and was like, hey, can you do this for us, can you do that for us? And then as I started doing more and more of that leadership kind of people side, I realized, hey, the technology side is ever-changing and exciting. And then I started leading teams of those folks to do some of the stuff. And then next thing you know, you know, as kind of right place, right time, merged into more of a, you know, kind of head technology, then CIO, and then global CIO. And then from there, that's kind of where my career took off, which I really enjoyed that, you know, segmentation of um, being able to drive value, but also being able to also articulate back the business outcomes. I think oftentimes, a lot of business folks don't really see the true value of technology. So being able to then go in and fight for those teams to make sure they got the credibility they needed, but also so they got the place at the table because a lot of times it was one of those things where you know nobody knows about IT, everything's working well, right? No one thinks about it. When it starts to not work well, that's when people start getting angry and start, you know, obviously shooting off emails and calls. So my number one priority was always to make sure that we had visibility into what we were working on, why we're working on those things, but also to make sure that people working on those projects, they got credibility and they could come into executive meetings. They could come into different briefings with our operating committee and they could share the stuff they did with the committee versus someone always doing that for them. So I think that was a fun aspect too, is just building up people. And then some of those folks kind of merged the business side too, which has been fun. So in my perspective, when you can bring somebody up in the organization, that's already working hard, already doing those right things and give them visibility from the executive leadership team. I think that's super exciting. And I really enjoy seeing people kind of grow and be challenged in their roles to kind of step out of just the traditional technology side. So what did you do to, to help prepare yourself to speak better in front of people? I know one of the things I did was Toastmasters and I've always done critical thinking and I've always gone ahead and, and listened to other people speak well. And I tried to then speak better myself. What did you do to even help prepare yourself to be the type of leader that you could speak to many groups? A lot of people ask me that all the time. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't have any kind of like formal training or anything. You know, I was kind of just thrown into the fire, if you were, you know, so just I think a lot of iterations. And I think, you know, one of the things is you, at least I felt a lot in the beginning, trying to have conversations, you know, with, with different folks. For me, it was always difficult to know how deep to go in different areas. Cause for me, I like to go super deep. And I like to be super, you know, kind of, I would say just giving probably too much depth and detail. So for me, it was actually stepping back a little bit and say, Hey, I'm not going to go so deep on some of these topics because you never know how much you know, insights someone has when talking to them. So you don't want to make them feel like, you know, they're not part of the conversation, but you also want to make sure they understand the nuances of what you're doing as well too. So for me, I think it was just a lot of trial and error and a lot of failures. And I had a really good executive team that kind of coached me saying, Hey, you know, for this group, this is what they really need to know. This level of detail that they want to be able to understand. And maybe for another group, you know, if we had investors coming in or we're doing M&A or whatever it was like, Hey, this, this group's going to need to know these type of details. And I think it was just setting the scope of the conversation. And once I realized, okay, well, this is the scope of these kind of conversations. And this is the scope of those kind of conversations. I was better able to then prepare based on the knowledge that those teams wanted. I think also just having the technology background, if they ask questions that were maybe deeper, I could go into those. And then what I would normally do is say, hey, if you want to learn more about this, let's have a sidebar conversation or, you know, we can talk about this offline. I think the rest of the team members, they didn't necessarily, you know, care about every single little detail of how we were doing X, Y, and Z. They appreciated that. So I think for me, I tell this to a lot of folks that ask me like, hey, how do I do this? It's kind of like less is more. And people will ask questions if they want to know more. And they don't ask questions. I think you did a pretty good job at level setting the detail. And I would stop there and just keep going. But people normally stop you and ask you questions if they want to learn more about stuff. I know myself, I always keep like a notebook and kind of make some little notes. How do you keep organized that way? Because as you speak to many different people, when you call on to speak to many people, you kind of have to keep some sort of 
thing in your head or note somewhere where you're like, this type of person likes things this way, this type of person likes things this way. How do you keep track of all that? What do you use to keep yourself organized in that fashion? Yeah, I think back in the day, you know, I used to use just like, you know, different stuff like Evernote, you know, those kind of technology platforms I think were great because a lot of times if I was traveling a bunch, you know, I was always afraid I was going to lose something. So having something that's backed up in some kind of, you know, cloud platform or some kind of online platform is always beneficial that way if you're traveling and you happen to lose your bags or whatever it is, you can still have all your notes with you. So I think from that perspective, I'd use that. I mean, honestly, I think a lot of it was developing relationships with people, you know? So I think a lot of times you get to know somebody by talking with them. And what I would try to do is I would try to expose myself as much as possible to different types of conversations. And I would try to get a feel for how people communicated, what they were doing, what it was like. Different business units and different groups and fusion teams, they're all going to speak differently. The nomenclature is going to be different, even the same organization, right? The culture is different in these small subsections. So for me, what I would try to do is immerse myself in those different cultures. And then I could use some of the nomenclature that they were using to make sure that, you know, obviously I was using the right terminology to make sense. And then from there, I think it's it's less about, at least in my opinion, less about the note-taking, more just about being authentic when it came to talking and being able to understand kind of what they were working on. And then you, you start to realize there's some people that are really passionate about different things, right? And those are the notes you take, hey, you know, XYZ is really passionate about A, B, and C. So next time you do something, yeah, I should email over to that person and say, hey, look, we just did this thing. Really exciting. Why don't you come down to the data center, bring your team. Let me show you how we did this thing. Or, hey, we just did this iteration or this rollout or whatever it was. Why don't you be a beta tester for us or alpha tester for us? And then you kind of build up this credibility and you build up this, you know, I would say kind of relationship to people. And then people start coming to you for stuff and they start saying, hey, you know, my team's looking to do this. What do you recommend that they do? Or you start becoming more of a, a gatekeeper for people saying, hey, you know, X, Y, and Z person wants to break into networking, but they're all business side. Like, how would they do that? You know, and I think it just naturally happens over time. I think some folks get a little frustrated. They want it to happen overnight. I mean, it took me like a decade to really be able to kind of go in there, feel confident, feel like I could have a conversation without having to, you know, kind of prep for a lot of stuff. So for me, it was more just about trying to become part of the conversation versus trying to have a conversation. That makes sense. It does. A lot of times because we do speak a lot, people think that, hey, we never had epic failures. And I tell people I have probably more epic failures than I've had epic successes. Can you share with us maybe something that, that didn't go exactly as you planned and, and what lessons you were actually to, able to, to learn from that to actually make better interactions going forward? Because I do think we learn more from our quote unquote missteps than we do all the time when we go in there and succeed. Yeah, I'm not sure how much time we have. I could probably spend the rest of the you know, year on that. You know, I think for me, the biggest thing was understanding, you know, the democratization of technology leadership. That makes sense. And what oftentimes happens is you forget who the stakeholders are, right? So I think what we do oftentimes, or at least what I used to do oftentimes, is I would start to look at how do we define the, the business outcome metrics, right? And how do we promote business capabilities? while also you kind of negotiating some of the different delivery aspects and, you know, designing this for humans, right? I think in my past, I would design stuff because it was the right way to design it, to code it out and say, hey, th this system makes sense because this is the right way to do it. And for me, it took me a while to figure out how are people using this thing? What's the user experience? What's the customer experience? And I would get so caught up in, hey, this is the best, most efficient use of code. Instead of writing, you know, 500 lines, we can write 12 lines and we're going to use whatever it is, technology to come in here and accelerate our app development side or, you know, whatever it's going to be from deployment side, from agile perspective. Like I used to get so caught up in what's the best technology way for us to deploy things. And I think I was probably leaving out some of the steps of what's the customer like, what's the user experience like, and most of all, are people going to enjoy using this platform and what's the differentiator between this platform that we're launching today 
and the platform we had previously that people said they didn't like. So what I started doing is forming more, you know, I'd say kind of fusion teams, or maybe, you know, we had different tire teams and I would bring in different business folks to use the product offering that we were launching earlier more often. I think that's where I was, you know, kind of missing a step is that again, weren't having enough conversations, wasn't connecting the dots enough across the organizations on who was going to be using the product offering, what they were going to be doing. And I think what I realized quickly is that the more people you can get for buy-in, the more successful the launch is going to be. And then you start to build these small champions across the organization. And those champions say, hey, this is a great product offering. This is what it did for me. I was able to accelerate whatever it was, you know, kind of market or, you know, my lead time or whatever it was. And then, you know, going about it from that perspective. I think the other thing that I really had a hard time understanding was the sales aspect, you know, because oftentimes, you know, you work with sales, they'll come in, they'll sell something that maybe or maybe not, you don't have yet in production. So then you're working to actually be able to achieve those things. And I think um, partnering with the sales folks and getting involved in conversations earlier and more often and saying, hey, let me go with you to the clients. Let me go with you to these different places and let me articulate what we can do today. I think that helped a lot. And then it wasn't a, you know, I used to think it was because, you know, they were trying to promise something that maybe we didn't have. It was actually, it was education thing. A lot of folks didn't know exactly what we were having because we were, we were spinning out so many different updates all the time that it was kind of difficult to know, hey, what, what's actually in production? What's working now? And we would sometimes give sales early access to stuff that was probably not coming out for six months. And then we'd accelerate that because we sold to somebody within two months, you know, kind of thing. So I think level setting and, you know, going to these different customer sites and talking to customers, for me, that was paramount because you can talk to your team, you talk to your extended team in the business, you know, those folks. But going and talking to customers and having them use your product in front of you and walk them through what you thought they were going to do and then seeing them do something completely different. And then you coming back and translating that to your team saying, hey, look, like this is what's going on. And even for them, I always try to get as many folks on my team in, in front of customers as possible. Because I think it's just a different experience when you see how someone's using your product versus how you envision someone using it. So those are some of the areas I think that I, I failed early on where I didn't, you know, contextualize that or understand that. And now I think that's just the most paramount part of business is actually designing things for the fit of what it's going to be used for long-term. I couldn't agree with with you more. It's interesting how people want even, whether it's CIOs or or CISOs or CTOs, and it's like, no, you're not supposed to be external facing at all. And you're like, what? That's who actually engages with our product. You should be more external facing at times so you can go ahead and you can deal with those groups a lot better. I know you deal a lot with encouraging and building teams up and, and strengthening teams. How can people today, when we've looked at people changing companies very quickly, people with variety of skill sets, cultural backgrounds, how do you navigate that successfully? Or lessons have you learned? Maybe they were missteps that you're like, you know what, this is how we can do better going forward. Because today's world in 2023, 2024, it's not the same IT world as it was, you know, even two years ago. How would you suggest that people build those teams up better and strengthen them? Yeah, I think first of all, you know, I mean, obviously, as you know, today we're in this disruptive and very volatile business environment, right? Where folks are coming in, working at places for a short amount of time because they're getting offers that are 2x larger in some cases than where they're working today. And then they come to another place and then they're constantly looking for something that, you know, may or may not have been fully sold to them correctly. So I think as executive leaders, you know, we should make sure we have complementary leadership approaches to our teams. The biggest thing for me is making sure I surround myself with folks that just fill in the gaps that I have because I have a lot of gaps. So my leadership team fills in those gaps. And then as we're recruiting folks, as we're making sure that we have the right people in the right place, I think it's less about looking at, you know, what is someone going to be doing to impact the organization and more about preparing folks for, hey, as you become leaders, you know, like 
in the past organizations, they relied on different leadership models, such as like situational leader, authentic leader, or like the, these digital leaders, right? I think that's a little bit antiquated for what we're doing today. I think based on the way you adopt a leadership model, organizations need to equip their leaders better for the skills that they're using today, right? And a lot of it is not around just those leadership areas. People are working remotely, they're working from different places, they're having challenges they never had before from a personal perspective, you know, based on where they're at geographically. And I think from that perspective, as leaders, we need to do better at finding a good source for directional leadership and guidance and making sure that we have, you know, a flexible approach to what we're doing versus a very stern approach, because oftentimes these stern set rules don't work in the environment today. So I think the way you can kind of attract talent better is to encourage your team, you know, and yourself to shift away from these like individual leadership approaches and be more contextualized as a, you know, complementary leadership team. And that normally comes with, you know, better intentional partnerships between the leaders, how you're sharing different leadership responsibilities. What's it based on as far as what you can do when it comes to, you know, your formal partnership that's forged with HR and more of the organic leader initiated partnerships you're going to have between different co-workers and, you know, these distant colleagues that you may have never met in person. So I think from that perspective, when you kind of have that mentality and you look at, you know, delegating more to other folks, allowing people that you come in you know, you're, you're normally hiring really strong folks. And then what happened is then you would kind of engulfed some of their leadership with your leadership skills and kind of change them to what you, you wanted them to be. One of the things I'm working on now is let's hire the best talent and let's let them lead with what they're best at. Let's not try to shape somebody into what our metrics says or what they, we believe they should be doing. Let's hire them and let them lead that perspective. And then what we can do is we can kind of bridge the gap. There's the contextual awareness gap, you know, in, in my opinion, I think the more people you bring on with different opinions, different leadership skills, different abilities to bring and build teams, that's really what people want to work for, you know, is being able to have someone that's going to be much more integral in their, you know, workflows for their daily priorities, but also making sure that as we go this, we're promoting different leadership styles and what's right for one person in one situation may be wrong for somebody else in the same situation. So I think it's being flexible there too. And then doing a better job at, you know, setting up these formal mentorships when you first start and saying, Hey, look, this is your formal mentor. And this person does things this way and you may not agree with those things. So take notes of things you would do differently and then we'll connect you with somebody else. I think it's just iterating and, and having a team that's open to feedback and open to learning and being a lifelong learner. And I think right now, a lot of folks, they think they know everything and Hey, I've been a leader for X many years. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do my style. It's my way, you know, kind of my way, the highway that doesn't work for me or our team. So we got to be flexible and open and we got to be constantly, you know, flexing to be able to do the things we need to do in the environment we have. And I think for us, it's, it's being a little bit more humble and nimble and saying, hey, we probably didn't do that correctly. Let's send a survey out to the team to figure out what we can do better next time. To your point, like, let's learn from some of these failures and figure out what we can do better. I think from there, the, that awareness to the teams, I think people respect that and they want to become part of that bigger type of interaction versus feeling a little bit more isolated in their daily tasks. No, I agree with you. There's so many companies out there who want to have transformational companies to go into the future, but then they're afraid to bring people in who, who come from the more I know, the more I know, I don't know. So I need to be a learner. So they get, they get nervous about people who have the educational background and are advisors and mentors and stuff like that. And you're like, those are the type of people you want because they're not full of themselves that way. Right. So one of the things too that, that we see quite frequently is that when people are brought into new companies, or I should say a newer company for them, they want you to do the best they can, but they want to be agile on steroids. And one mm-hmm. of the things is that from a CIO perspective, CTO perspective directly, and the CISO perspective, we have not run agile 
sprints ourselves. And I know one of the things I've told people, the hierarchical for me, even though you need to know who's in charge, that doesn't work. We have to build our teams more to be a hybrid project model to get through quicker. What's your viewpoint on that, on how we are structuring CIOs, CTOs, and CISO teams to try and run better with the business when we're not running it the same way as operationally? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, you know, you're only going to be as fast as your slowest person. So I think from my perspective, it's going in, understanding the organization super well and saying, hey, where are the bottlenecks going to happen before we try this? Because what oftentimes happens is you get a group of people in there, you get a tiger team going, you get a fusion team and everyone's, you know, all excited to do this thing. And you start sprinting at thousand miles per hour and everybody else around you is going at two miles per hour. And then you get frustrated with them. And then you're creating a really, in my opinion, like one, not sustainable team and two, a, a culture that's leaving a lot of people out that aren't at the same pace as you. So what we try to do, at least what I try to do with my team is, you know, hey, let's figure out where people excel. Let's make sure we go talk to all of our business partners and figure out what they expect from this, first of all. Because doing something fast doesn't necessarily mean doing it well. And a lot of the people, I think they confuse agile for fragile and they're breaking a lot of stuff as they go along, right? So I think from that perspective, you know, you don't know what you don't know and what's the cost of doing nothing. Sometimes the cost of doing nothing's you know, paramount. It's, it's, it's large, you know, it's, it's material. Sometimes the cost of nothing is actually not material. And you're like, this probably isn't the best use of our time, but people want to make everything agile. So we do try to sit down and say, you know, what's end state we're trying to achieve, right? I call it the Quentin Tarantino method, right? So let's, let's start with the ending first. Let's figure out what we need to achieve. Let's figure out what business partners we need. And then let's design this in a way where we can, you know, maybe instead of going about it in seven days, we can go about it in 14 days, but we can do it in a way that's pragmatic, efficient, effective. And by the way, like, we get enough people involved to where we have a good product outcome people can use. A lot of times people are doing very fast, agile sprints. And sometimes the stuff that they're working on isn't even usable when it goes to production because it was just so fast and there wasn't enough you know, input from other folks in the organization to actually roll it out. So we're seeing a lot of cycles of folks working on things that maybe aren't the best use of time. So for me, it's more about let's figure out two or three initiatives for the entire year. Let's double down on those initiatives. Let's find the right partners. Let's spend longer than we probably should to explain, articulate, you know, and be able to get people on board for what we're trying to achieve. And then people then, before we do anything, can say, hey, I don't agree with that, or that's probably not the best of your time. Or by the way, this happens a lot. Someone else is already working on that in a separate group over here. So maybe you should merge your work streams. And then from there, you can work together with those folks. A lot of people don't want to do that because they think it might be slower or it might not be the what they're trying to achieve. But at the end of the day, if you're not connecting the dots, and being episodic across the organization, then you're essentially creating a bunch of silos. And you're eventually going to you know, either silo yourself away from the, the larger part of the organization, or you're going to silo your team into a, a smaller silo, and they're not going to have the same credibility that they need with the organization to get things done as well, too. So from my perspective, it's about going together as a team, making sure we have a common vision across the entire organization, not just a few spots in the organization, and then not trying to change things too rapidly, but ensure that we're doing things in a pragmatic fashion that's going to be sustainable versus just we did some quick wins. And then now what? You know, I mean, it's great to have quick wins, but it's better to have, in my opinion, real wins that actually are produce some kind of business outcome, either like a new digital revenue, maybe you're fast trying to market, things that actually accelerate the business, give that to shareholders. Like that's what excites me, not just doing a, you know, ERP installation at a record speed, like for what? What purpose, right? So I'll pause there, but I mean, I could go on all day long about this topic here. So, no, those are great. And recently you were, you were talking about 
how people have gone into the cloud and they're debating to go one cloud, multi-cloud. And for me, with 2020, they didn't think about how to do it mindfully. Like, right. let's just do shift and lift. And now it's like, my words, holy crap, Batman. Mm-hmm. What is your recommendation? Maybe three key points recommendation on if people are going to go to the cloud or people already realize that their instantiation, their architecture wasn't there. What can they do to, to try and make it a better, you know, 2022, 2023, try not wrap up for maybe a bad instant, you know, instantiation of it? Yeah, I think a lot of times it's just being realistic and being reasonable, right? So I think a lot of folks did a lot of things temporarily through COVID. You know, the first two years, things were done very rapidly because there was not a lot of budget for it. It had to be done, right? It had to be done. That's what everyone's excuse was. You know, we had to do this. And they probably didn't have the resources needed to actually fully think out what they could look like long term. Because again, this was a short term thing, everyone thought to solve some short term problems, which is now turning into a much longer term solution here. So I think the first thing is sitting down with your, your, your board or whoever you report to and say, look, like we did a lot of these things because we had to, and they weren't the right way to do it necessarily, you know, if, if that's how you feel and saying, this is the budget we're going to need to do these things correctly. And by the way, like if you don't get that budget, here's the cost of doing nothing. And here's the cost of doing something. And then I think as our role is just to make sure we articulate what that looks like. First of all, is like something what's the cost of doing nothing. And if the board or the you know operating committee or whoever it is says like we're fine with that risk, then I think realistically you're going to say okay, well we're going to go in and we're going to do the best we have that we have, and we're going to go in and we're going to try to make this better by patching some stuff and you know hopefully doing some different API connections to maybe a different couple multi cloud providers. That way, if one goes down, you have some kind of business continuity plan or some kind of disaster recovery initiative where you can spin back or do what you need to do. By the end of the day, you're probably not going to be able to go in full full board and say, let's think about this from scratch now and how we design this you know, today. I think the other you know, kind of point there would be, what is the outcome you're trying to achieve? Because if you're just trying to do things faster and cheaper and better, like public cloud might not be the option for you. If there's a specific use case you need to achieve, right? Like that's when things become much more clear. Or if you're trying to leverage a tool set, you know, like some different public cloud providers have great tool sets that you may not you know, be able to leverage on your own without using the public cloud, you know, tools. If that's the case, then, you know, maybe using those tool sets for certain use cases makes a lot of sense. You're saying, hey, look, for these applications, we're going to spin off and, you know, name your public cloud provider here. And then for everything else, though, we're going to keep it in our, you know, data center at, name your data center there, right? And then you do more of a hybrid approach to yourself saying, this is what we're going to do. I think where a lot of folks get sometimes in a little bit of, you know, frustration is when they decide to go lift and shift to your point, Let's take everything. We're not going to re-architecture it. We're not going to reconfigure it. We're just going to literally lift and shift. And then they start breaking. They realize containers don't work the way they thought containers work or Kubernetes doesn't work the way they thought Kubernetes work. And they start having a lot of applications fail. And by then, I mean, the only way to fix that really is to either bring it down, reconfigure it net new, or to have some kind of thing where you patch it with some kind of like temporary API connection. But oftentimes, multi-cloud providers, you know, any public cloud provider for that matter, they're changing stuff on a pretty frequent cadence. So if you don't have a team that can support that, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty costly thing to put something that's not production ready or maybe like, you know, native cloud ready in public cloud. So what happens then is you're constantly chasing the cloud providers as they update their APIs, they update their things, things are going to break. And you have to be on their schedule, not your schedule. <laughs> and you have to make sure that you're changing things and hardening things as they recommend based on their ever-changing plans. And if you're not able to keep up with that because you don't have the, the team or the money or the budget, whatever it is, like you're going to be constantly chasing something that's probably not going to deliver the value that you're going to be delivering. So again, it goes back to what are we trying to accomplish? Why are we trying to accomplish that thing? And why is it better for us to do it here versus there? And then lastly, I would say, look at it from a compliance perspective. 
you know, there's certain things you need for GDPR or certain things you need because of, you know, Fed compliance, or whatever it is. Like there's some good public cloud providers out there that you can actually leverage their, you know, certificates and their knowledge and their abilities. Again, I make it purpose driven for certain things. And maybe it's areas, again, where you are not as strong. You can leverage some of that for your teams to say, okay, we're going to leverage this and we're going to learn from these different aspects. But I think, again, just doing the wholesale lift and shift is always somewhat problematic because you don't know what you don't know until you get in there. And when things start breaking, it's hard to normally, you know, fix those things in, in a native cloud environment versus where you're at on-prem. So again, like I'll pause because I can go about this all day long and uh, it's a fun topic. Now, Ryan, thank you. If people want to get a hold of you for speaking engagements or, or things along those lines, how do they learn about you and how do they learn more about Gartner? Yeah, I mean, I, I try to stay active on LinkedIn and Twitter and stuff like that. So if you want to reach out, feel free to do that on any of those social media platforms. Always happy to chat and always happy to talk to smart people like yourself. So I appreciate it. Ryan, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. And Ryan, you are a soulful CXO. Thank you. Appreciate it. Likewise. <laughs>